Bible. Hey, good morning. Boy, how great is that? I love, love having those kids up here. There's something about the way that um, they bring joy. They bring joy to this room. So, and they bring joy to Christmas as I think about uh, our own daughter, just the, how, they, uh, how she opens her eyes or she opens gifts and just the amount of joy that's there is just so, thrilling, so enthralling uh, and what we remember as us as adults and what it was like when we were kids. And so, man, just so, so thankful to have them there. Special thanks to all the volunteers who do such a great job with kids' ministry. So, uh, and to those of you who won the Life Group uh, Gingerbread Competition Challenge accepted, okay? I am a competitive person. Next year, we will build one the actual size of the church. Okay? <laughs> so if you're in our life group meeting next Tuesday, okay, we're in, all in. Start, start saving your money. We're going to need a lot of chocolate, okay? Um, so, hey, if we have not met, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem, and it's so great to have you guys here with us uh, this Christmas season as we are, we are moving in Advent. We're moving towards uh, Christmas. It's crazy, man. It's a week away. Oh, man, just snuck up on us, um, and it's here. Um, and so, uh, but we're glad that you're here. We're continuing our series this morning in the book or the gospel of Mark. Uh, we're on page 78 in our companion guide. And so if you want to grab that, we'll also, uh, if you just want your Bible, it'll be chapter 6, verse, verse 30. So here we go. Okay. Dive in here with me into this story as you picture this. Now the scripture doesn't tell us, doesn't tell us how long that this journey has been, but it's the first time that the disciples have gone out into the world by themselves. You see, we're in the beginning of year three-ish of Jesus' ministry out of three or four years. In those first two years, uh, he spent just time over and over and over with the disciples, and they followed. Jesus turned right, they went right. When he turned left, they went left. When he went to the other side, when they didn't want to go, they went with. It has been an exciting journey, but a challenging one for the disciples. And so for many of us, we're picturing this whole thing is because it gets to year three, and all of a sudden, Jesus goes, hey, the time has come. And you're like, for what? And he's like, it's time for you to go out and try. You see, for three years, he's been training them. And so all of a sudden, it gets to this point. It would have been comfy in the very beginning. The crowds would have been a fun thing to be a part of, to be at the center of this ministry along with Jesus. It's like that scene in Elf where he goes, Santa, I know him. That's what they say of Jesus, but times a thousand because that's a cool thing. And so all of a sudden, though, at the beginning of year three, Jesus says, now it's your turn. And like, what are you talking about? And Jesus is like, don't you remember I said that you would be with me so that I might send you out? And so he sends them out in twos. And you got to wonder what kind of look is on their face as they begin to leave. Is it, a, is it a look of excitement for some, a look of eagerness for others? Like, I'm going to conquer the world. And then there are some who are like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And they begin to walk, and from town to town they go. And I just picture one of the disciples saying, man, what are we supposed to do? And the other one saying, all we know is to do exactly what Jesus did. You see, that's the time period. And we don't know how long it's been. We don't know if it's been a week. We don't know if it's been two weeks, if it's been a month. They've been gone for a while. It's long enough to go from town to town. And when you go to a house, what you're supposed to do is to stay in that house for the remainder of your visit until you left. And then you go to the next town. So it's been a while. And you got to think that the, the range of experiences is pretty broad. And some people have said, this is great. And some people say, this is ridiculous. And so maybe the people who left full of excitement, eagerness to conquer the world are the most disappointed people. And maybe it's the people who are the most timid who had the best experience. I don't know. 
but you begin to picture them walking down the dirt road in the heat as their feet get sweaty, their body gets, gets sweaty, and they come to a home and they share a meal in house after house and city after city. They proclaim the gospel until they finally, upon a pre-arranged time or date, which we don't know, they return to Jesus. And I picture Jesus sitting by the fire. He knows that they're coming, and so he's preparing a fish, and it's crackling over the fire, and in walks the first pair, and Jesus says, don't tell me anything. Next pair comes in, don't tell me anything. We've got to wait for everybody. Finally, everybody is here, and Jesus says, okay, tell me about it. How did it go? And you got to think that maybe some of them, you know, were really excited. I picture maybe in that moment, Peter, maybe he breaks the silence or later on and says something like this. Jesus, I got to admit, when you first sent us out, I thought this was a bad idea. This isn't our ministry. This is your ministry. This is about you and what you're doing, not about us. But I tell you what, Jesus, it was hard and it was challenging, but I'm beginning to get it. This, we know that you're the center of this, and we would never leave you. This is all about you, but it's not just your ministry. This is our ministry. This was really good. And what we find is that no matter how challenging of a thing, I think in this we go, there is joy in this moment. There's joy in this conversation as Jesus listens and hears all about how hard it really was. You see, we've been in this Advent season, right? But before that is this started. We started all the way back in September. We've been tracking through the Gospel of Mark. And really, as we do that, we track the authority of this new figure in the first century world. And his name is Jesus. And he claims to be the king of a new kingdom, right? And we know that he has the authority to do that. Why? Because he's the son of God. He's a part of the Holy Trinity, co-divine, co-eternal, all of those things. That's who he is. You look at Colossians and you go back to creation. Who created the heavens and the earth? It was Jesus. And here he is. Mark skips right past the birth and the narrative of Jesus. Luke covers it completely, and we'll talk about that more next week. But Jesus gets, or Mark gets right into this thing about this kingdom. And we've been tracking through as we've watched this. And so, and it's been an exciting journey for us because there's many times, I think, and if there's many of us in this room, maybe even myself included, when we look at Jesus and we hold him from a distance and we go, man, like I know that I can fill in the gaps. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. His dad's name was Joseph. His mother's name was Mary. Man, I know all of this. It was Herod the Great at the time, like, and, I, and I can walk through and I can answer all of it, and yet what I can find is that by reading through the Gospel of Mark, all of a sudden, I realize that I've been following from a distance. And Jesus' invitation is not just to a personal relationship with the Father, it comes with this contingent that you would follow me you follow me closely. And so as we pull this Bible, it's almost like as we pull this Bible closer, 2,000 years removed, as we read and study and listen and begin to practice this in our daily life, we begin to sense that we can follow Jesus closely today in the world in which we live. And it's an exciting thing, but it's incredibly challenging because I think that there are many times in my life and probably in yours where we'd say, I'd rather be Facebook friends with Jesus than actually follow I'd rather be a Facebook friend than a best friend because best friends means that I gotta be right there. 
I got to walk through this with him. And yet, this is incredibly exciting, but this is challenging everything. And for many people, it challenges a lot of what we know about Christmas. Because when we get to Christmas, we get the sweet, you know, you know, five pounds, six ounce baby Jesus kind of a thing. And we think, oh, how pretty and cute and, and this whole manger scene is. And all of a sudden, as we begin to realize and remember that, that Mark is moving us directly towards the cross, it blows all of that up. There's beauty and there's joy and there's extravagance in the, in the nativity scene. And it is all of those things. But Jesus came with a mission and said, I'm moving towards the cross. That's why I'm here. We cannot forget that in this season. And so we've been talking about Advent, right? And as we've been processing through this, we've talked about the first one. The first one is the word hope. And the way that we, we talked about this just to help provide some level of of, of uh, maybe clarity in this regard is to talk about it from the sense of desperation. Like, how do we experience hope? Well, we, we experience hope when we are desperate people. You see, there are always moments and circumstances in life that will bring us to a, point of, a place of utter desperation. And maybe you've had some of those in your life and maybe you're on your way and if you haven't had it, it's coming. Because there are always those moments. But the older you live and the older that you grow and the more broken you understand yourself to be and the broken your spouse and the broken your coworkers and the broken world, the more you begin to see that desperation, it's not so much circumstantial as it is in every moment type of a thing. And it forces us to put our hope in something. And so for us as Christians, we know that the, the deepest and richest hope in this life is found in one place only and that's Jesus. But in the midst of that, because most of the world doesn't place their hope in the person of Jesus, they put their hope in another person, in an idea, in a job, in a lifestyle, in something. Because there is always that, there will always be opposition. And so for us, that second word of Advent is the idea of peace. It's shalom. It's the way that the world is designed to be. It's the way that the world ought to be. And Jesus says, I'm bringing it in my kingdom. And oh, by the way, you are not just recipients of that peace. You are now to be peacemakers. And so as you enter into opposition and conflict, there's a whole new way in which we experience the shalom, that we are giving people a taste. And this morning, we are talking about joy. And as we think about joy, right, like joy, I immediately go to those moments of like kids around the tree and they're opening gifts and all of a sudden you see the smile and the satisfaction on their face. Like there is something like, like I have been waiting for this for my entire life and for many of them they have and that joy is an overflow in that moment. And for us as adults, we go, man, that's incredible. That's a beautiful moment. But there's also the sense in which we go, but real joy is something so much more. It's so much more. And so for maybe there are people this morning, guys, well, here's the deal. I think, that, I think that there's this, that hunger, there's a hunger inside of you and me that can only be satisfied in Jesus. And maybe that's cliche, but it is that simple. That there's a hunger inside of us, but it's when we begin to realize that Jesus is the only person that satisfies, that that's when we go, oh man, there's joy in this moment. No matter how good or no matter how hard or challenging life is, that's when there is joy. And I think that there are people in this room, I think there are people in Fargo-Moorhead, there are people in the nation, right, and the Christians and non-Christians, people who have given their life to Christ and people who haven't, who all maybe together would say, I long to be satisfied in a way that I am not currently experiencing. You see, I'm tired of the name drawing and the gift buying because every year I hope that it will bring me something, but I'm at the point where I've realized that it's not going to fix the things that I want it to fix. I can't expect different results and do the exact same thing. 
And so here we go. We jump into this idea of hunger, and we're going to look at the story in this, in this Jesus moment. It's the miracle. It's the feeding of the 5,000-plus people. And what we're going to find is that there's hunger in these people's lives, and the only satisfaction that you can find is in Jesus. Right? Here we go, jumping in. Verse 30. It says that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and had taught. Okay, so it's a simple, easy verse, but guys, there's a lot in this, okay? If it feels like you're jumping back into a story, it's because you probably are. We're in week 16 of this series in Mark, right? And we're only six chapters into 16 chapters. For three years, the disciples have been following Jesus. We've got 10 chapters left, and it's still the beginning of year three. Jesus knows that the cross is coming. He's got a limited time available to him. I need to train up these disciples, disciple-making, discipleship, however you want to talk about it. There's tons of baggage, but it's about passing along a gospel, a way of life. And something I learned a long time ago is that it doesn't matter how many times I have this pulpit, I cannot pass along a way of life from this space. I can share insights, but when it comes to life on life, I just can't do it. And I realize that this isn't about me. This is about a we type of a thing. And so when it comes to Salem, our mission here is that we exist, or you could say however you want, but living lives of love, to live lives of love with God in community and on mission. And the way that which we talk about that is through the imagery of the cave and the table and the road. And so here's what you get, right? The cave is the space of intimacy between me and the Father. It's a holy, special, private place. It's good. You see, the table is where we get time with other people, and the road, though, is where we get time with the world. And what what we find in this is that Jesus brings them back to the table. So let me just show this and illustrate it, right? So if you come over here, we look at, here's our cave time, right? It's so small, you can't even barely read cave. You see, cave is a small moment in my day, and for maybe you, maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's an hour, you know, but there's a moment or time in which we try, and we, we try to do this on a regular basis. Maybe it's not daily, maybe it's every day, however that works for you, there's this moment, we go, this is a relatively small space, but when you look, but when you look, this is the road. Like, your, your Monday to Friday, workplace is right here. Your Saturday is right here. Your evenings are right here. When you're snowing, when you're blowing snow, when you're snowing blow, whatever that means, when you're blowing snow and you're doing all those things, right? It sounds like a bad thing. Okay, here we go. We're moving on, right? Whatever it is, like in this, like all of a sudden you go, man, I'm in a space and in a world, in a realm in which I am existing to minister to those that God has placed around me. And you begin to see how something so small can have an impact on something that's much larger. But see, here's where it's missing, this idea of a table. You see, here's what's so cool about the table, is that as soon as you insert the table in this space, this now becomes a bridge between what's happening here and what's happening here. And this is where Jesus invites the disciples back to you. What does he do? He sends them out onto the road. He sends, go out into the world. Do the things I'm asking you to do. Live the way that I want you to live. Uh, Share the gospel. All these components, right? And he says, oh, and by the way, come back. Bring it back to the table and tell me how it went. Tell me how it went. And so for this 
moment in, in our space. If we, as we look at the rhythms of Jesus and we think about that in our mission statement, all of a sudden, if I'm in a table space, now I know that this is a place where there's direct accountability. Hey, what's going on in your cave time? What's going on in your walk with Jesus? Oh, by the way, what's going on in your walk with the world? Tell me about that coworker that we've been praying for. How's that going? Right? And all of a sudden, this becomes a bridge. And it's in the midst of life that this is where struggles come out. Everybody has struggles. I learned this a long time ago from my mentor. Everybody has struggles. Very few people learn how to struggle well. Guys, to struggle well doesn't mean you struggle any less than anybody else. It just means that in the midst of your struggle, no matter how deep, no matter how hard, it's that God's grace covers that struggle. And that's a beautiful place to be. Some of you guys may know this last month has been a hard one for my family as we had an adoption lined up. And it's still hard to talk about because that adoption fell through. Everything in our life we had planned around this baby in the matter of two weeks. And it wasn't we were just planning for any baby, we were planning for a specific baby. Everything in our brains and our minds and our expectations around Christmas time right now as we thought that we would have another kid. And it didn't work. But to go to my table to come back and to be able to struggle well in that space, to say, I'm taking off my pastor hat and here's my heart. It's a beautiful space. But it's also a space of accountability. It's also a space that says, hey, how is your cave time and, and how is your, is your road time, right? This is, a, this is a beautiful thing and Jesus invites them back. Uh, many, many years ago, I was in a very different role at a different church, and, and once a month I was working with volunteers, and so we'd have them come, and we'd meet before uh, the ministry time, and so I'd have 40 volunteers in this group, and every month we would teach about disciple-making, because it's all about people taking their groups and their, and their young people and them investing in those, in those kids, because I can't invest with all of the kids in those group, right? That's the way it was, and the same thing for here. I can't invest in every single one of you as much as I would love to. I'm a people person. I can't do that. Right? And so we're doing this training, and there's this gal in the back, and she raises her hand. And it was one of those moments where I thought, ah, do I acknowledge? <laughs> because 50% of what she said was really good. The other 50% was, meh, not. And so as she raised her hand, I said, yeah. And she said, Seth, I don't even understand why we do this. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? And she goes, Seth, if you ever leave, the church will just hire somebody else, and he'll do all the work. And I thought, man, if that's your perspective, then you've missed it. You've missed the mark. And if that's your perspective this morning, you've missed the mark because that's not what's happening in the gospel of Mark. Get it? I don't know what that was. Bullseye, I guess. <laughs> right? You've missed the mark. And see, what Jesus does is that he sends out the disciples. He says, go, do it. And then he brings them back to the table. He says, tell me about it. Don't tell me about the little things. Don't just tell me about what you have for lunch. Like sometimes like I, like I, like I get home and I, and I ask Eden, I say, hey, tell me about school. What was it like? And she looks at me and she goes, well, I had a corn dog for lunch. <laughs> I thought, man, honestly, that brings joy to my life because I love corn dogs. But that's where the story stops. Tell me more. It was good. And see, sometimes I wonder, like, in this moment, is Jesus, like, with the disciples, he's like, tell me about it. And Peter's like, man, you remember uh, Philip and Sarah over in such and such town? She makes a killer soup. It was really good. We spent three days there. Tell me more, you know? 
Like, don't just tell me about what you had for lunch. Tell me about how the gospel was a part of every single moment of your time. That's what Jesus wants. He says, come back to the table and tell me about it. If we were to push pause and double tap right here in this moment, we're in the first verse, and you push pause, here's what I would tell you. Practically speaking, I encourage you to be in a group. Because the group is at the center, it's the bridge. We have all sorts of groups. We have got life groups, that's our primary thing. We've got adult learning groups, we've got youth group, we've got kids group, we've got all sorts of groups to help you, to gather you around a space of people. And you go, hey Seth, raise my hand, and I say, too busy. I say, I hear you. I know what life is like to be busy, but can I just encourage you to ponder this thing? You might actually be too busy to not be in a group. Because the group is at the center of how we follow Jesus. Jesus here does it. He invites them back in. He says, here's what I'm doing. Jesus is at the center. Guys, here's the reality is that in life, you're going to come to a spot where you find that yourself exhausted. That's where my wife and I have been this last month with adoption. Just utter exhaustion, mental, emotional, physical, even spiritual at times because of all these things that were happening, and I was able to come to this group, and they were to bear that with me. But Jesus knows that that these disciples, as they have gone out into the world, he acknowledges and sees their exhaustion. He says, you guys are tired. You need a break. Look Look at this, verse 31. It says, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Guys, these guys are busy, busy, busy people. This is the culture in which we live in. I think sometimes I wonder, are we actually addicted to busyness? Is it a status culture thing that you go, man, the more busy you are, the cooler you are? Right? The more sought after you are, is that the thing? I learned this this week. I don't know if it's entirely true, but this is what it said. It said that, le- that less than 50 people utilize their PTO. I thought, that's ridiculous. And I thought, oh, wait, actually, that's me. I just don't. And all of a sudden, if you're not, you're like, I'm not even a parent yet. You're a single, or you're dating, or you're engaged, or you're young married. All of a sudden, you get a dad, and then there's a five-year-old just attached to your leg. You just feed them off of your leg, and that's life. And your time just, just, just gets sucked up, and, it's, and this becomes a new reality for us. Guys, here's the thing. I learned this this week, too. What's the number one thing? Just for you to take a guess, what's the number one thing that you think that we put off when we get busy? cleaning. Somebody this morning in first service said, amen. (laughs) I was like, preach it, sister. We put off cleaning. We put off projects. We put off laundry. We put off shopping. We put off going to the gym. It goes all the way down to paying bills and decreasing order. Guys, here's the thing. I look at this list and I go, that's really probably pretty true. That's accurate even in my own life. There is a chair in our home that we bought when we lived in Colorado. Guys, that's 15 years ago. I don't know, something like that. I think it's still pretty new. Because here's the deal, every time I walk past that chair, that chair was bought to be a safe space in our bedroom, knowing that when we had kids, we would need a safe space, and it's a space to read our Bibles, it's a space to relax, it's a space to rest, and yet 90% of the time, that, that chair has been covered in clothes. We just recently, we just recently like uncovered it. I sat down. It's like, it's a brand new chair. It's so good. It's got no creases. It even smells new. It's so great. <laughs> we put off cleaning. I get it. But here's the thing. When we put off some of those other things, the thing that we haven't even talked about is how much we put off Jesus. It's easy. You see, cave time might be the first to go. 
I just don't got time. Table time, too busy. Can't do it. Road time, oh, I can't even, if I can't do cave time, I certainly, certainly shouldn't even think about investing in my neighbor or my coworker. Oh, I got no time for that. And all of a sudden, the rhythms of Jesus get lost. Don't come to church, all those things. I mean, it's just, it's just the thing. It's easy when we're, when we're busy. Guys, and we just, busyness leads to exhaustion. And Jesus acknowledges that. He goes, you guys need rest. And I'm not talking about fake rest. I'm talking about real, real rest. And then I'm, he, and Jesus is like, hey, guys, we're going to go get some time away, but I don't want this to be an annual thing where you just plan a vacation, and then you come back from your vacation, and you go, that was good, but I need a vacation from my vacation. How easy is that? How often do we do that in life? How often do you hear that from people or experience? Right? If that's, if that's what keeps happening, guys, our definition of vacation is wrong because we expect something to change. We keep still, still doing the same silly things. Same thing I think can be true with Christmas. There's just an exhaustion. You come out of Christmas on the other end, and you're like, man, that was great, but I'm so tired. Are we getting it wrong? Are we getting it right? Maybe some of you are. And Jesus acknowledged it with his people. He's like, here's the deal. I, I acknowledge, and he says, come away with me and rest for a while. And all of a sudden, if you are busy and if you are exhausted, all of a sudden you hear those words and you go, man, Jesus gets me. Sounds so refreshing. If I could just have an hour, some of you guys are so busy. Like, if I could just have an hour to myself. And it's so refreshing to hear this that Jesus acknowledges it and he goes, Here's the deal, we're going to go to a desolate place. So, with verse 32, this is where they depart, right? Which, by the way, it says that for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. That's just crazy. This is the world in which they live in. They're so busy, they couldn't even eat. And it says, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And so they get in this boat and they set off with the direction and the intention of going to a desolate place because these guys are wiped and they're tired. And you're like, Seth, how do you know? Oh, I know. Because I've been in ministry for 15 years. I get it. It's exhausting. Because here's the reality. Guys, the problems of the world don't stop when you're tired. That's just part of the world in which we live in. And so Jesus has every intention to get them some rest, but something happens. Look at verse 33. It says this, it says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and he went ashore and saw a great crowd. Okay, let's pause and stop for a moment, right? And so here's the thing. They get in the boat, and they begin, and they set their direction, you know, dirt, 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 that way. Luke tells us that they're going to Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and so we don't know exactly where they're at. They're somewhere in the Sea of Galilee area, and so they hop on the boat, they set their direction, and they go. And yet, it seems to be that the people that are on the land, they notice what they're doing, and so they think, man, we should go be a part in that. Like, selfish people, this is who we are. This is humanity. Like, no one in this moment was like, hey, guys, I don't think we should really do this. We should respect Jesus' time. And some dude's like, uh-uh, I'm going to run there. And he runs, and he gets going, and he trucks along. And so the fastest and shortest way is a, is a straight line. The fastest way is also by boat. There must have been a headwind. 
Because they go and all this crowd begins to run all the way around, which is the longer way, the longer distance, and by the slower means, by foot. And yet as they run, it says that people from other villages begin to gather. It's the snowball effect that continues to roll and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And they get to the north side of the sea and they look and they see the boat, it's still coming. And the guy's like, told you we could do it. And just ran a mini marathon. You know how many calories that guy just burned? He's going to be hungry. He's going to be hungry here in a moment. But here's what happens. As I just picture the disciples in the boat, and as they're going, maybe half of them are asleep, the waves rocking the boat and lulling them to sleep. They're exhausted. They're hungry and tired. You wonder if maybe Peter, being the oldest in the group, looks up and squints out and Best say it on the horizon and says, Is that a that can't be a crowd, right? No way. They were just over there. That's by foot. That's a long distance. You get closer and closer. Sure enough, it's the crowd. And it's the same people that they've just been ministering to. You see, at the beginning, I think if you're a disciple, you're probably like, hey man. Jesus, the groups are cool. This is great. We get, to the, we get to be at the center of this. But all of a sudden, when you hit your limit, you're like, get away from me. Go away. I once was in a car uh, taking a kid to a middle school thing, and, and we got in the car, and the kid just wouldn't stop talking. And I was like, how can I get this kid to stop talking? I'm driving, and all of a sudden, it starts downpouring and pouring and pouring and like hard, hard. And so I got the windshield wipers on full, full blast. And so this kid is talking. I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, please help me. What do I do? I said, I, I'll bet you five bucks. I'll give you five bucks. And it's an hour-long drive to get to the laser tag. I'll give you five bucks if you can count the windshield wipers until we get there. <laughs> Huge mistake. He counted. He was about 1,200, got to Lincoln, Nebraska, where we were, and he came up to me and told me the number, because, oh, by the way, he did it all out loud. <laughs> I knew where he was at. I knew he did it. He came up and said, can I have my five bucks? I said, get away from me. <laughs> because you get to a limit. You hit this limit in total exhaustion, right? And I just wonder if you're Peter in this moment, and if you go, really, people? come on, like, give us some space. And you go, like, here's the thing. Here's the humanity. On one hand, you have the problems of the world of broken people that never stops turning. It's over and over and over. And the people that Jesus had sent out were limited human beings. And so here you have this people that never stop, and you have people who have only so much energy. But fortunately, for everybody involved, the crowd and for the disciples, there's one person who can deal with it. And that's Jesus. He's in the boat. And so you got to wonder if Peter and those guys saw the crowd as vultures and wolves, and yet Jesus, as he enters into the story, as Mark describes what happens in Jesus' heart, it says that he was moved to compassion, that he had compassion over them. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. They weren't wolves. They weren't vultures. They were just a broken people. They are beautiful, broken people. They are defenseless sheep who were created in the image of God, who were just longing for someone to say, follow me, and I will lead you to green pastures. I will bring you the food and the satisfaction that you've always wanted, the hunger inside of you that has never been satiated. I got this. That's what they're looking 
for in this moment. The Greek word in the New Testament for that is splankna, which is such a weird word, right? And it's like this idea of in your bowels and in your movement. And as Mark is describing this, Jesus, he's moved to compassion. I just picture Jesus in the back going, I feel it too. And Jesus is like, no, that's just because you had dairy for lunch. You don't get it the way that I do, Peter. These are broken people. I know that you're tired, but we've got some work we still need to do. And so it says that Jesus began to teach them many things. I, don't, I couldn't find my picture of it, so my apologies, but I remember a moment when we were driving in Israel as the bus came around a corner and our tour guide said, hey, I want you to look out the window over here and here's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see the mountain coming down and then you're gonna see the other mountain coming into it and at the bottom is this valley. And he said, here's where most people think that Jesus would have taught the 5,000 people because here's what happens. If you were to stand at the bottom of the valley as the wind would circle through and around the mountain, it would carry the voice. And because it's this natural backdrop on every side, it carries his voice. And so before cell phones, before mics, before microphones or any of those things, right? Like Jesus was not just able to teach to 10 people. He was able to teach to thousands 2,000 years ago. Brilliant. He begins to teach and teach and teach. All of a sudden, somebody's like, this has gone on too long. You guys are like, I know, I think Seth preaches too long. Jesus went longer. It keeps going and going and going until finally somebody says, hey, Jesus, you should send them away. Send them home so they can buy some food for themselves. That's a legitimate thing because everybody is hungry. But do you think that the disciples had some type of selfish motive in this? Absolutely, I'm sure. Like Peter's like, Jesus, come on, seriously. Like I've fallen asleep six times in the last 20 minutes alone. Can we just go? You know, like I, like I don't think it was probably Peter. I'm guessing that it was one of the teenagers because a lot of these disciples were teenagers. One of those kids is like, man, I don't think Jesus knows how much food I need. And so he's like, but I ain't got the guts to tell Jesus. Who could I tell? Oh, I know, Peter. He'll say anything. <laughs> hey, P- Jesus, uh, the, the young guys over here said we should go home. It's time to eat. Could it have ended right there? Absolutely. Jesus could have said, go home, get some food. Lesson is over. And yet I look at this in this moment. I go, gosh, Jesus knew that a way of life cannot be passed along from a pulpit. If you think this is where the story ends, you're far from, far from correct. You're sorely mistaken. Because Jesus is trying, he is moving towards the cross. This is the perfect moment for a miracle. This is the moment he's been waiting for. He's going to minister to the crowds through a miracle, but he's going to train the disciples at the exact same time. He's going to say, it's not just my ministry, it's our ministry. That's what he's going to do. And Mark has set us up for it perfectly because he describes the place as a desolate place. Literally in the Greek, that means a desert place. Where does that take you in the story? Way back when? Old Testament to the Exodus, which, by the way, is the strongest motif in all of the Old Testament that points us to the cross. And so Jesus is capitalizing on this story about the wilderness and about the desert place because as they come out of Egypt and out of slavery and they enter in, they're moving towards the promised land, which is really what Jesus is doing. He's moving towards this eternal life idea that's going to happen in the cross. But in the moment here, there is this wandering. And what happens with the people is that there's this massive hunger. How does God provide? It's through a miracle. It's the miracle of manna. And it shows up daily over and over and over, and this is their source of food, over and over and over. How big was the Hebrew people at this time? It wasn't 10,000, it was in the millions. You think that was a miracle? 
what Jesus is about to do is far greater. You see, in the Gospels, this one is one of the only ones that's recorded in all of the Gospels, of all the miracles. Why? Because it shows the exponential power of Jesus' ability to provide. Jesus is far greater than Moses ever was or ever even could be, no matter how many years on earth. And as the disciples say, why don't you send him home? Jesus is like, do you think that this is where the ministry stops? If you think that people coming and hearing stories is the end of the line, if that's the finish line for Christian education, you are sorely mistaken. Because I am moving towards the cross. And you think that providing for millions of people through manna, you think that that was great? Guys, I'm going to carry the sin of humanity, past, present, and future. There isn't a number known to man that can capture that kind of a miracle. That's where I'm going. There is a hunger inside of you and me that can only be satisfied in Jesus. And when you realize that, oh, that's when you will experience joy. And so I just picture Jesus in that moment as they, as they offer this solution. And Jesus knows what he wants to do. He looks at the disciples. He looks at the crowd, looks at the disciples, and gets this, this wry smile on his face and says, you do it. <laughs> I wonder if there's a little chuckle. That was maniacal. Jesus wouldn't do that. It'd be more funny. <laughs> you guys do it. You guys do it. Lighthearted. I don't know what that's like, but you guys go do it. One of them's like, Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread. If we were to even go into town and buy 200 denarii worth of bread, that's what you want us to do? By the way, John tells us that 200 denarii, like if you were to bring that much bread in that culture to them, only, they only would have had a morsel or a scrap enough to eat. It wouldn't have been enough to satisfy. In today's world, 200 denarii is about $350 back then. That's not much, but back then it was about eight months worth of wages. You see, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's about to perform a miracle is that he wants to set up the impossibility of the task at hand. He wants people to see the gap between what is possible in life and what is impossible so that you get to it and you go, man, there is no other way that that happened other than God. There's no other way. That's what that's Ephesians 3 prayer. I love that. It's far greater to do anything like more than we can ever ask or imagine. Like you show up and you're like, man, I, had no, I have no idea. That's just a God thing. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this moment. Every night when I tuck my, my baby girl, Eden, into bed, I say, Eden, how much does Dad love you? And she goes, this much. And I say, no, bigger. And she goes, this much? No, bigger. And she goes, this much? No, bigger. And then she goes, she stretches as hard as she can. Like her muscles are spasming and convulsing. I'm like, you're close enough. It's bigger but you're close enough. You see, there's this gap between possibility and impossibility. And it's in this moment, this is a manna type of miracle. Jesus says, how many breads, how much bread do we have? And some guy's like, well, we got five breads. Also, we got two fish. And she's like, I didn't ask about the fish. I only wanted bread, but that's okay. Bring the fish too. We'll use it. He looks up to heaven, says a blessing, and he breaks the bread. I don't know how this worked because it's a miracle. The closest thing that we have to this in life today is might think of a magic trick. There are some people who have commentated that Jesus had a secret store, a stash of food in a cave nearby. <laughs> Dumb. And Jesus, I just like picture him. He's got this basket and then the disciples in line and he's got a basket and he hands the, to the next person in their basket and then they go and then he hands more. 
to the next basket, and they go, and he does it 12 times. So each person receives, and so Jesus says, go and distribute. The people have been seated in rows of 150, and I just begin to picture the disciples as they come out. They're like, I don't know how we got 12 baskets, but we do. And they go, hey, are you hungry? I know that you're hungry. Can I get you some? Here you go. And every time you put your hand back in, you're like, oh my goodness, there's more. Hey, there's some for you too. There's probably not some for you. Actually, there probably will be, (laughs) you know? Like, and it just keeps going and going and multiplying. And the end of this, by the way, I love this. They pick up 12 baskets full. And I think that Jesus in that moment is like, you see, you thought I forgot about you too. There's enough for everybody. There's enough for you too. You see, I think the whole time, I'm just guessing. Maybe the disciples were incredibly disciplined and, and selfless, but I just picture somebody being like, hey, kid, you going to finish that? I'm going to eat it. I'm hungry. And they begin to pass out this food. And I love it. It says that when they ate it, when they eat it, it said that they were all satisfied. Oh, how good. You think about that as a miracle? Man, how good is that? Guys, by the way, Jesus would later say what? I am the bread of life. This is where we're moving. Right? I want to end with this, like, this little like, fun kind of a thing, and then I've got some application here for you, but I think that this is really fun. Right? So when you think about um, our outline, we had these three R's, right? this idea of reporting and resting right? and replenishing. What do they do to replenish? They eat. There's the satisfaction that happens. How does the story begin? You go back to the beginning, it all starts with the disciples going. And all of a sudden, you read this, and you go, wow, that's great. (laughs) Wait for it. Don't spoil it. I wonder what Kent thinks about that. (laughs) See you next week, Kent. (laughs) I love it, right? That's great. Here's how this ends. 5,000 people, it says eight. This is the miracle. We're moving towards the cross. 5,000 people. That's the men only. That's how they counted in those times with women. That's seven, or in, uh, in children, seven to 8,000 people. We're a multi generational church. We celebrate that this morning when we just bring kids up here. You get all the women and children in there, that's seven to 8,000 minimum. You're looking at 50, maybe 15,000 plus. And all of a sudden, you talk about the miracle, the sheer size of that miracle points us to the cross. And I love that there are 12 baskets full because Jesus says, there's enough for you. I want to end with these couple of things as we finish. My wife and I this week were out on a date night. We hadn't had a date night in about four months, long overdue. Someone had given us a gift card, and so we went to, we went to this restaurant and we got there, and then, and then silly us thinking about, thinking about having the gift card. We're like, let's go wild. Let's get an appetizer. <laughs> let's go wild. Let's throw caution to the wind. Let's get an appetizer. And so by the time we eliminated everything with mayonnaise and everything with fish, because I hate mayo and she hates fish, we're like, she's like, that's the one. I'm like, great, order it. It comes out later on. And I kid you not, guys, the appetizer was this. I looked at that thing, I looked at my wife, she looked at it, we looked at each other, we looked at it again, and I said, there must be a mistake, they forgot the other five. I looked at my bill, that thing right there was $15. 
And I was like, never again. <laughs> I ate it, though. And like a good, a good husband, guys, would have just pushed it and slid it to his wife, so we split it in half. And then I, I pulled it to myself, and I cut it into two. And in one bite, two bites, it was gone. It looked good. It tasted good. But it was not satisfying. Guys, we live in a season, in a culture that maybe is living off of crumbs. Only in Jesus is there satisfaction. There's a hunger inside of you that can only be satisfied in Jesus. And, that's, and when you realize that, that's what will bring you joy. And they give you these three applications as we finish and as we close. The first one is this. It has to do with replenishment. I wanted to make this key note. This is a key note from when the disciples said, why don't you send them away? Send them to go do their own thing, to go buy their own stuff. I see, I think Jesus is like, nuh-uh. You see, you're missing the point of the story. This isn't about what they can buy. The things that they need, they cannot get on their own. No, 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 no. What they need can only come from me. So he doesn't want to send him away. He wants to perform a miracle. Here's the thing. When he looks at the disciples and says, you do it, sometimes I think we look at that and we go, challenge accepted. What can I do? I don't think that's the point. Jesus isn't asking you or I to perform the miracle. Jesus isn't asking you to go die on a cross. He's not asking you to do any of that. He's saying, I want you to be a part of this. Oh, by the way, at the end, when there's 12 baskets full, guess what? There's enough for you. Here's what I want. When I say you do it, I want you to eat yourself of the miracle. And I want you to be satisfied. But then, I want you to take the basket to each group and say, can I share with you the goodness of this miracle? Can I give you some of this food? And it's the food of Jesus. It's the only kind of food that will ever satisfy in this life. And it's only then can you have joy. The next one is this. Make sure you have rhythms of rest. I won't give you all the, the key pieces here. You can come talk to me. But I just encourage you in this Christmas season, find some rest. And not fake rest, real rest. Point yourself to Jesus. Don't be exhausted. Don't come out of it and go, man, I wish I would have done that differently. Do it good. Last one is this. Join a group. If you're not in one, it's a practical way to find yourself at the center. Put yourself in a table experience where that can connect you to everything else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, we, we come to you this morning in desperation because desperation is a daily thing. I pray that you would be stirring inside of us a hope that can only be found in Jesus. If there's any opposition or conflict in our heart, I pray that the gospel would speak directly into that and say there is grace for you and there is grace for others. Be a peacemaker in this world. And I pray as we move into this Christmas season, as we think about the many joys associated, whether it's family or gifts or whatever, Lord, I pray that we would capitalize on those and know that those are good things, but that those would find their truest and fullest meaning in Jesus. That wouldn't be just about those things, but at the forefront of this is that we would acknowledge and admit to you right now that there is a hunger inside of us that maybe we didn't know existed until right now. And it's maybe someone who's never known Jesus in life, and maybe it's someone who's known Jesus forever, but for us just to admit and say, Jesus, I'm hungry. Would you feed me? Would you give me something to eat this morning? And would you bring real joy into my life despite, despite everything else that's in life right now? Lord, we love you. Thank you for the 
cross. 